This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So I want to take some time to talk about the precious metals markets and some of the recent price action. You know, uh, since their run-up, you know, towards the end of January on on the back of of talk of the Fed ending quantitative tightening and certainly a much more dovish tone, they've pulled back, you know, not not a huge amount. You know, the whole scheme of things, if you're looking at this three-month chart, it doesn't look like that big of a deal, and yet when you move to something like a one-month chart, it's a little bit more significant. I think uh, people maybe got used to um, this big moves up in, in both silver and gold, and it's kind of stalled out for the time being. But you know, without going into super deep technical analysis, because you guys know that that's not what I'm really into. I think technical analysis offers um, some insight into various markets, but but it's just one piece of the puzzle. Right, fundamental analysis over the long term, yes, that matters too. But also things like uh, current events, and, and there's plenty of other stuff that that plays into where metals are going. Of course, there's the you know the manipulation aspect of it as well. But again, without getting into any deep technicals here, you know, I, I think both metals have uh, had a a healthy pullback in the sense that. They didn't spike up and then come all the way back down. No, they actually found some support at levels that were previously seen as resistance for for gold. Kind of the the big round number was 1300 or or 1302, 1303. That's what a lot of people are actually quoting before gold actually broke through that. And it's finding support there. And and then silver has actually found some pretty uh, healthy support around 1560, 1565 in that range. Um, so again, I you know I. I I tend to think that they're not heading lower and that that spike right there was not some sort of anomaly and that this whole thesis that that silver is is still heading to twelve dollars and gold's blown going below a thousand you know if this type of strength continues you know the, the strength that we've seen over the last couple of months if it continues you know for you know i'd say through march um I think that that theory kind of has to go out the window at some point. And, and yeah, there's there's always the chance that in, you know, in some sort of a stock market crash scenario, some sort of a crisis, we have a big dip in the metals like we did back in 2008. But but I've talked about that in the past that the scenario that we have today is is far different from what we had back then. And I think how the Fed responds, how government responds, even how the markets respond, you know, it's it's different, right? The the whole history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Well, I think that kind of applies here. You know, we're seeing some of the same mistakes made by policymakers. We're seeing some of the same imbalances in the economy. But that doesn't mean that when the stock market drops, we're going to see the same series of events, right? Just like we're, you know, this next crisis is is likely not going to be a subprime mortgage crisis, right? We're not going to see uh, big financial institutions, big corporations go down in the same manner manner that they did before. And so, it's a different beast this time around. Same thing goes for precious metals. And I think the downside uh, risk remains limited. And obviously, don't take this as financial advice. This is just my own take on, on kind of this price action. Uh, I Even down to, to where they were not all that long ago uh, for, for much of the second half of 2018 where we had, uh, excuse the pop-ups here, we had gold, I think the low of 11, 
70, 11, somewhere in that range, 1180 maybe. Uh, actually, you can see right here, yeah, around 1170. Uh, and, and silver, of course, below, well below $14 an ounce. I would be surprised to see that again, right? Um, if we're going to pull back, I, it might be more closer to this 1280 level uh, in, in the low 15s. But but again, you know, silver and gold, they have, they have two things, I think, working in, in somewhat opposite directions. First of all, you have time kind of working against them in the sense that, you know, as we get closer to summer, there's a chance that this rally stalls out and we kind of get into the whole sell in May and go away thing for precious metals and, and they have a couple down months. But the other thing that's working... Uh, in their favor is this inevitable uh, big picture pivot towards weaker monetary policy. And I, I want to bring something up here for you guys. I want to bring up the dollar index to kind of reinforce what I'm talking about here. Um, and I apologize. Here, I'll try and make this line a little more narrow. So so basically, this is just something I talked about last week about how uh, the, the dollar, as you can see here, uh, was higher and, and we had precious metals lower. And then you had the dollar move down and precious metals move up. Um, but then you had the dollar rally quite a bit, and metals moved down a bit, but not a ton. And then you had the dollar move down, metals moved up a ton. You had a huge rally in the dollar, finally, in the last month or so, and metals didn't move a whole lot, okay? And and that's kind of talking about, you know, how this, for whatever reason, we're having a stronger dollar and and metals are actually kind of hanging on. They're outperforming versus how they usually do against the the US dollar and and is that safe haven bid is that uh, kind of expectations of the dollar eventually moving down is it um, other forces within the market you know I think there's it's no one answer but the the point that I want to make here is that you know despite all of this relatively dovish policy policy from the Fed you know the dollar is still relatively strong the dollar index and so you got to ask yourself what happens when the Fed ultimately does come out and say QT is done and, and the big pause, however long it lasts, has officially begun before they ultimately move in the other direction? I heard somebody bring this up the other day. I forget if this was Peter Schiff or Simon Black from Sovereign Man or who. But they said, you know, the Fed is – this could have been um, John Urbino, Craig Hemke, uh, Kerry Lutz. I don't know. One of those podcasts I was listening to the other day and, you know, they brought up that the Fed, you know, they've never gone through a hiking cycle – Hiked rates a bunch, and then pause, and restarted again. No, once they pause, the next move has always been to the dovish side, to to lower rates or, or to QE. And so ultimately, that's what's happening. Yet the dollar still remains, as you can see, over ninety six. You know what happens when it's down at ninety four or at ninety or eighty five? You know ultimately it's heading much much lower. I can't guarantee that's going to head super low, but you got to remember that that even if it does move to 90, it's probably going to be along with a lot of other central banks still with very weak monetary policy. And so what does that mean for metals at that point? Does that mean gold finally over 1,400, silver uh, moving up along with that? Uh, now, another observation that we can kind of make here that I'd like to make at least uh, is is that silver, again, has, has kind of outperformed that that silver to gold ratio has, again, kind of widened out a little more. Um, I haven't actually checked where it's at, but but just judging where this chart's at, you know, it's it's obviously spread out some compared to to where it was maybe uh, when, when that big rally began. Again, I'm not super concerned about that. I, I personally, again, do what you will with your own money, your own investments. I see it as a buying opportunity for silver. The ratio remains high, and it's kind of a no-brainer for me unless you're, you're uh, buying a lot of metals. Um, 
And and ultimately, I, I'm expecting that between, you know, if, if gold does move up here, if the support holds and then the next move continues to be up, another leg up, I expect that ratio to come down somewhat between here and 1400 for gold. But then once it gets through 1400, again, I, I think that ratio is going to come down much further. And so, you know, maybe gold's at 1400, that ratio is between 75 and 80. But then once gold continues to move up on, on the back of weak fiat currency, weak monetary policy, economy, etc., uh, then you're looking for that ratio to really come down. And who knows? It might be below 75. It might be between 70 and 75 by the time it's 1,400. And then I think you're going to see that ratio come down much, much more, more into the 60s, the 50s. Who knows how low ultimately it's going to go? What's the, the equilibrium there? But um, again, it's where it's at right now remains uh, pretty high. Uh, especially, you know, for me personally, if I'm going to choose whether I want to buy silver uh, versus gold. So that's, kind of, again, kind of an update on what I'm seeing in the markets right now. The strong support there around 1300 around 1560 is 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 positive, right? It, it, the, the price action has been super positive compared to where it's been. But I think, you know, with, with another round of, of weak uh, uh, policy from the Fed and, 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 and weak economic data, I think we can see both metals continue kind of this this rally up. You know, this could be the beginning of the next bull market. Uh, I think that's not at all too much of a stretch to, to make that prediction. You know, the next thing I want to talk about here, this is from Kitco. China on gold buying spree, PBOC, People's Bank of China, adds 11.8 tons to reserves in January from Niels Christensen. Uh, now, this is, uh, I don't know if they'll actually show a chart here from Kitco. Looks like they don't. But basically, the, the story here is that China had, for a long time, they're paused in its official gold reserves at the PBOC. So you can see here, uh, in December, they increased it by just under 10 tons of gold. The first time the central bank had increased its reserves since October 2016. Now, if you followed my work and certainly the work of, of somebody like uh, Lewis uh, from, from Smell Gold, you would know that that number is kind of misleading, that in reality... China has continued to hoard gold at, at a feverish pace, despite the official PBOC number not really increasing. Because the fact of the matter is that China, because of the nature of its economy, the more more socialist, communist nature, nature of the economy, uh, is that they're, they're likely holding gold at various levels that you could still consider within the grasp of the government. And so this could be sovereign wealth funds, various other funds that are connected to the government. Uh, what is, you know, after all, private property here in the United States, uh, let alone China? Uh, so, so it's held in various forms, um, even just the wealthy that, that may be uh, hoarding gold. That's when pushing them as a shove can easily be nationalized. Uh, so, so you know, the number that we have here for the uh, PBOC, I don't know if they actually have the official number. It's a fair amount. It might be 1,800 or I don't know if they have the actual amount of tons here. But uh, in reality, you know, the number that they actually place on this is closer to like 20,000 tons of gold, which is a massive pile of gold. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's more than what the U.S. claims to have in their reserves, whether or not those are actually there. It's hard to say. But, you know, that number is kind of compiled from the amount of domestic gold production that we see out of China, uh, which they don't really export for the most part. 
Right. Uh, maybe maybe gold pandas, which aren't bought in a huge quantity. Uh, maybe gold that's used in, in manufacturing purposes, which again isn't huge. And then they also import quite a bit through the Shanghai Gold Exchange. So 20,000 tons, and, and that might even be outdated. It might be closer to 21,000 tons by now. Um, so so quite a bit of gold at, at $1,300 an ounce. I don't have the numbers in front of me exactly how much that would amount to, but but uh, it's, it's a pretty significant reserve. And yeah, this is a big deal that PBOC is adding gold, but they've been adding gold anyways, the, the government of China. Uh, you know, the next thing I want to talk about here was this this new deal uh, in, in this Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AC, or AOC that they call her. I mean, it's this is not something I've really broached on my, on my channel because you guys know that, that politics, yeah, I talk about them, but I don't get super amped up about anti liberal policies, anti-whatever policies, for, for the most part. I will from time to time, but, but this type of back and forth in Washington, it's just not something I discuss a ton. And yet I've seen a lot of people get very upset about it. As I said, I mean, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she's been in the spotlight for, for what, maybe six months now? You know, it wasn't that long. It was probably when she won the election that she really started to garner a lot of, of inter, a lot of national attention. And, uh, of course, I think she's capitalized on that, if you want to call it that, with, with her Green New Deal and, and quite a bit of, I guess, uh, publicity in that time span. But, you know, I think those of us that count ourselves as more on the conservative side of things or libertarian or constitutional or whatever, you know, I think it's an important that we, we don't get too... I guess, enraged about this AOC business, about how how crazy she is, or that we, we, we don't, because, because at the core, what is it that, that we really dislike about her, or, or Nancy Pelosi, or pick your politician, it's, yeah, maybe they're unpleasant people, I, I don't see myself getting along with, with somebody like a Nancy Pelosi, or Chuck Schumer, or, you know, for that matter, a lot of politicians in Washington, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that to 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 really rise in in the ranks of 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 uh, I guess Washington, whether it be president uh, or some of the leaders in the Senate, the House, etc., you, you need to bend a lot of rules. You need to make a lot of moral compromises. You have to be a pretty unpleasant person, I think, to 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 know at the personal level. Sure, there's maybe exceptions, but but is it really them that that we're no? It's it's their policies, and I think that's something important to keep in mind. To not resort to things like ad hominem attacks basically uh such and such is an idiot therefore <laughs> that's why their argument is bad no I, I think it's very easy and i think a lot of people have been doing it that have dare i say been a little hysterical about this um they they've attacked their ideas you know a great example would be peter schiff uh you know piece by piece kind of broke down the whole idea of the green new deal and just how ridiculous it is and yet you know he 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 calls her uh, the bartender, right? Uh, that was kind of the, the nickname that I think maybe he's trying to get to stick. And and I get it that the bartender gone now going to to Congress. I, I get it. I, ideally, you'd want somebody with maybe more experience, more intelligence. But wh who's to say that there? Are, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of very intelligent bartenders or, or or individuals that occupy other types of jobs that could potentially be very good leaders, very good businessmen and women, etc. Um, but but that's not. 
that doesn't get to the core of why we may dislike her or her policies. It's, it's her policies, it's her ideas. And so I think we can critically appraise this Green New Deal or whatever socialist uh, baloney that comes out of Washington, socialist or otherwise, and, and critically appraise it and say, this is why this is a bad idea. And you don't need to resort to those tactics. They can be very, very effective, sure. Um, look at Donald Trump. He he won the White House in many ways by certainly the Republican uh, nomination, um, not on the back of, of a ton of great logic, but a lot of it was appeal to to emotions, right? Uh, lying Ted or or whatever other uh, you know uh, uh, crooked Hillary or, or you know uh, uh, lock her up. You know those types of of, of more emotional based arguments can be very effective. But these are some of the same tactics that you see out of, of the mainstream media, right? The, what, what was the meme that, that came out, the NPC, right, the non-player character uh, of, of these people that kind of act mindlessly. And, and so you get very emotional arguments against Donald Trump, you know, a person whose who's a lot of his rhetoric, honestly, is very similar to what we saw out of the Democratic Party, party for, for many decades, Things like we need a wall, they're stealing our jobs, etc. This is stuff that, that you know, I grew up hearing for many decades, maybe not many decades, me personally, but for many years, out of the left, and, and now they're in hysterics about what he's saying. Is it more emotional-based than, than logic here? Um, and, and so certainly we don't want to resort to that. I don't think, again, it can be effective, but long-term, that, that leads to maybe a lack of principles, more emotional-based. I don't like the guy with orange hair or orange face or whatever Trump has. Um, therefore, I don't like his policy. No, we should more so just focus on the policy. I don't like this policy. I don't like this idea. I don't like this ideology because of a, you know, whatever. It restricts freedom, restricts liberty. It's not at all going to be effective. It's going to destroy our economy. It's going to cost too much, etc. So I guess that's my take on it. Um, there's... People like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, it's hard to say where she's going to be two years from now, ten years from now, whatever. Who knows? Maybe she's the new face of the Democratic Socialist Party. She's going to pick up where Bernie Sanders left off. Uh, ten years from now, she's going to be in the White House. Uh, ten years from now, she very well could be bartending again. She could be lobbying in Washington. She could be uh, totally out of the position that she's currently in. But the ideas she's promoting... The idea is that Bernie Sanders or so many other on the left, uh, or even sometimes on the right, and we got to remember that many on the right uh, 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 have over the years embraced some very socialistic policies, talking Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. Uh, their ideas are still going to be there, and so uh, we, you can be the nicest person in the world, but I still might, very well might be against your your policies if they're not going to be working or if they're totally against my my idea of what I consider freedom or what I consider uh, the, the Constitution to, to, I guess, spell out within the document, the Bill of Rights, etc. So I guess that's my thoughts on, on this, this whole political uh, business. Am, am I a fan of her? No, I'm not. But you got to focus on the policies, focus on the ideology, not just on, on the person here. Even if there are plenty of, of things to criticize about a lot of these individuals' uh, personalities or, or whatever. So, final thing I want to share here, a little bit more nonsense. Um, this is something I saw 
last week. Bill adds fee to rideshare surge price to fund DUI prevention. This is in in, in Oklahoma. Now, now, again, this is just a bill. It hasn't become law as far as I know in, in the last six days, maybe. But anyways, a new bill filed in the Oklahoma House would increase price on rideshare customers to fund new programs to end drinking and driving. This is a great example of just nonsense out of the government, out of, of in, this, in this case, a state government. The House bill asking rideshare companies like Uber or Lyft to create a new charge during surge pricing hours. And of course, this funding, this charge, which is in this case 20%, right, which might not sound like a lot, but well... I'll, I'll be talking here in a second why that's important. Uh, you know, on a $20 ride, that might be an extra, what, four bucks? Uh, during surge pricing hours to, to fund things like DUI, what is it, DUI prevention. Now, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're with me here already in, in understanding why this is such a ridiculous idea. Because one of the great things about Uber and Lyft and, and kind of the, the way they've revolutionized ride sharing and taxing and, and transportation as a whole in the last uh, couple of years is that when it comes to these surge periods, which are usually what, like Friday night, Saturday night, usually in the evening during the times in which people choose to drink and potentially drive, uh, they have probably prevented quite a few um, accidents, uh, deaths, injuries. In general, I would guess a massive amount of people have chosen to use Uber or Lyft when they would have in the past maybe made the poor decision to drink and drive and ultimately get in an accident or otherwise, you know, get pulled over, etc. And so, you know, basic economics here, what this is doing is, is they're asking these companies to increase the, the charge not on all of their rides, not on the 12, 12 p.m. ride for, for, for somebody going out to grab lunch uh, during, during normal business hours and, and uh, most likely are not intoxicated. But no, during the surge pricing times when people are leaving stadiums potentially intoxicated and people are leaving bars, clubs, uh, their, their friends' houses, etc., when they're potentially intoxicated and then they have that choice. Are they going to drive home? and potentially risk their life and, and other lives? Or are they going to, to use a rideshare program? And what they're doing here is they're making that rideshare program 20% more expensive to fund DUI prevention. And so what they're doing is basically funding DUI prevention while also uh, basically making the decision to, to drink and drive a little bit more attractive because of that 20% increase. Now, in the whole scheme of things, yes, we know those of you that are sober and listening to me while you are in a relatively sober uh, state of mind, know that choosing the rideshare program, even with the 20% surcharge, makes sense because the potential costs associated with a DUI, an accident, increased insurance rates, getting your license back, and of course, personal injury to yourself or others or potentially death, that the potential benefit to 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 uh, uh, or the cost, I guess, with with the rideshare program, far outweighs potential costs with DUI, from moral perspe moral perspective, from from a financial perspective, etc. But of course, we're we're sober for the for the most part. I am. I don't know where you're at, uh, but we can approach this from a more rational sense of mind. But but when you're you know have three, four, five plus drinks in you, uh, rationality kind of goes out the window. Uh, poor judgment. It kind of goes hand in hand with with alcohol. 
And so, you know, you guys know I'm not a fan of, of government intervention in the first place. So obviously I'm not a fan of, of this type of, of a tax. That's what it is, a charge, a surcharge. It's a tax, another way for government to tax us. Uh, and I'm certainly not a fan of subsidies either where the government pays out people. But, you know, if you were to make an argument for a subsidy, it would make sense to subsidize surge pricing maybe in certain districts, right, downtown districts or, or places where people might be drinking. That would make more sense in this tax. You know, obviously, I'm not in support of either. But but taxing just does not make sense here. It's it's irresponsible. I have no idea if this is going to go anywhere. Already people have been raising questions of, hey, maybe this is to scare people away from, from people using uh, rideshare programs during the times in which they should be wearing, uh, using them. Uh, but uh, it remains to be seen where this goes. So this has been followed. Again, just, just the ridiculousness that, that we see out of government, in this case a state government, uh, out of, of state representatives. So... Anyways, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this video down below in the comment section. Pretty wide variety we're talking about here. So let me know, you know, if you like me. Uh, obviously, I cover precious metals first because I know that's why a lot of you guys listen. But branching into a little bit of, of politics and, and maybe a more no-nonsense, uh, not super partisan view on politics or this nonsense, let me know down below in the comment section. As always, I'd like to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.